Recovery Reform is a podcast that provides educational content while addressing the stigma against drugs and the people who use them. Expertise meets lived experience as the hosts and their respective guests unpack the multifaceted cause that is recovery reform. Welcome back to the Recovery Reform podcast. My name is Macaulay Sexton. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Taylor Nichols. And today I'm going to interview him. All right. So I'm going to jump right into it. And I want to hear about your childhood (laughs) and if you can expand on just basic childhood stuff. And then I know you shared that you have, I think, at least one family member with substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder. I want to hear a little bit about that if you're comfortable going into that, bro. Yeah. Um, Thanks for jumping right in. And thank you, everybody, for joining. Um, you know, I, my experience, um, like I had, I had a good childhood, um, and I, and and that's something that I talk about in terms of the context of substance use disorders. Is there's sort of multiple facets to to what um, makes this web of of developing substance use disorders, right? And genetics is certainly a component. And as as you mentioned, um, I do have a family member with substance use disorder. My my father has alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder. Um, and he, you know, I have a long family history on his side um, of substance use disorder. So uh, he has siblings. He has he has um, three siblings, and um, a few of them have substance use disorder, have alcohol use disorder. Specifically, his mother had alcohol use disorder as well. Um, and so growing up, I, I knew that, um, but he had been in recovery in, you know, he was in AA, um, still is, since I was born. Um, so I have not known him to be actively using in, during my lifetime, he has had uh, multiple episodes of, of returning to use, mostly brief, um, particularly around alcohol, and then um, and then did have a sort of more recent prolonged episode, or his most recent return to use um, was now over six years ago. Uh, he had a period where he was using opioids. Okay, and, and I was a I was a at that point I was. A, medical, you know, I was an emergency medicine resident. Um, and I was sort of learning to reframe my ideas of substance use and substance use disorders at that point. And that was, that was actually like a pretty important time for me. But yeah, as far as childhood goes, like my childhood was good. So, you know, when I talk about substance use disorders, that it's a um, medical condition born of sort of three factors. And one of those is genetics. And we know that we can trace up to about a quarter of the development of substance use disorders back to specific like genetic sequences. Then there's the um, environmental aspect, the, the context in which you grow up. Um, and there, you know, there are some people that frame substance use disorders just in terms of, of a response to trauma. And I don't think that's entirely true. I don't think that adequately encapsulates the entirety of what substance use disorders are. Um, But the more sort of traumatic experience you've had or the more uh, exposure you've had to certain things in your life, 
then the more likely you are to develop a substance use disorder. And we, we see yeah. that, right? We know that like ACEs scores, right? Adverse childhood events, uh, the higher your score, the more likely you are to develop a substance use disorder. You have the genetics plus a high ACEs score, even more likely, right? And then the third factor is exposure. Um, you have to be exposed to something to then like develop a substance use disorder for that thing. Um, and so the, a big difference, knowing that I probably have all the genetic components that would be required, um, was that I didn't really have the trauma history. If you look at the ACEs score growing up with someone in your immediate family who has substance use disorder counts as one. Um, but when I've done that scoring before, I've never really counted it because I've always felt like it was around active use. Um, and if someone was actively using and like unable to stop using, then that sort of counted. And I never really felt like I was exposed to it in a negative way because I never like my father's been in recovery since I was born. Like that was, a, that was sort of the, the initial impetus, right? For him in obtaining his sobriety and maintaining that sobriety was, um, was I was, I'm the oldest uh, of, you know, I have one younger brother. And um, when I was born, he got sober um, and maintained that. And so I, I never really counted that as, as a trauma. It was something that I learned from but that wasn't traumatic. The only real like trauma that I had was I, I um, you know, when I was seven, I had a brain tumor and I almost died. And that, and I had four, four brain surgeries. Um, and that was obviously very heavy. Um, but that was not, you know, like if you look at the ACEs score, like that wouldn't actually come up on that list um as like a thing um so you know that that was certainly an experience that drove me that drove me to medicine right i don't have like i don't have doctors in my family um i decided when i was in the hospital when i was seven that's what i was gonna do coolest coolest thing in the world to me was to be able to like dedicate your life to save somebody else's because somebody did that for me right it was like a way to pay it forward that somebody when I went unconscious because I had a, a brain tumor that was like creating this increased pressure in my brain and I like literally went unconscious, somebody was there who had dedicated their life to saving other people in the emergency department and then was transferred to, you know, have surgery by this pediatric neurosurgeon who had like dedicated his life to be able to do that and like save kids with brain tumors, right? So. I thought that was awesome. And I thought there was no cooler, better thing that you could do in the world than that. And so that's what got me here, right? Um, and so the alignment of that interest in medicine and being there to, you know, be there for other people to try to save their lives, um, to pay it forward. And my experiences with my own family including including my dad but you know all the way up like i was very well aware of my grandmother's alcohol alcohol use and her alcohol use disorder and and how she was pretty much 
drunk most of the, most of my life. Um, that sort of is what inspired me when combined with seeing what was happening in the emergency department, where this was something that was so significant in terms of the way it was impacting our patients and society. That's sort of what drove me to do addiction medicine. So yeah, I wanted to ask you a couple questions just as it relates to everything you just went into, because you went into a lot of really important stuff. So first thing is like, so you were just aware, basically, that your dad had had that experience. But did you feel like that based on your understanding, like, was it concerning to you? Was it something that you consciously were like thinking about consistently? Or was it, you know, just kind of like a normal part of life? Because I know for a lot of people, like you said, like, for people who are like actively using, it can be very prevalent and occupy a lot of uh, their bandwidth just when it comes to, you know, just what they're thinking about and being worried and, you know, all just stuff like that. So like, was it, was it something that you kind of just didn't even think about often or, you know, like what, where were you at with that? It didn't, especially when I was younger, right. I I didn't even really pay any attention to it. We just didn't, um, we didn't really like, we didn't have alcohol in the house. We didn't like parents didn't drink at dinner or anything like that. And it wasn't something that I particularly paid attention to. Um, And it wasn't until maybe more like when I was a teenager kind of thing um, that I started to understand more. And, but I couldn't quite conceptualize the impact of that, but I was never negatively impacted by it. Right. Like I never, I never saw, I knew that this was a thing that my dad actively worked on and he went to meetings and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and that was that, right. And it was like, that was, he had that support and I didn't really think too much about it. No, when I started drinking, you know, like in college, I definitely paid attention to that though, because I knew I had this strong family history, like from my grandmother my dad and his siblings on down right like i i figured there was a decent chance that that could happen and so i paid a lot of attention to how i responded to alcohol and um and if i went overboard i like would wind it back a little bit and i there were a couple times where i stopped drinking altogether because i was nervous about what direction I was going um, with it. And so I think being mindful in that way was actually very beneficial for me. Um, Makes sense. I didn't didn't see it ever as like harmful to me. That's what I was going to ask you is that it kind of ruined drinking for me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, my mom is in long-term recovery from alcohol use disorder and, uh, I would just be extremely introspective and analytical anytime that I would drink alcohol and it like messed it up. So I wanted to ask you, like, was yeah. that there for you? Did you feel like you had to, it doesn't sound like it, like, cause a lot of people then that can create a, a resentment towards their parents, you know, aside from preexisting ones to where they're like, yeah, I can't even drink alcohol without like being mindful about it, which often in college and other settings, 
it's not mindful drinking, which is, you know, normal and, and kind of like part of our culture. So it's interesting to hear. I, I really like that. And I think it's important to touch on that, you know, people who are in recovery that have kids can, you know, have a completely stable life that is not negatively yeah. affecting their kids. And you know what I mean? And And even, right. you know, even if there are returns to use for people who are uh, you know, accountable about it and that go into whatever solutions best for them that, you know, it can, things can work out and, you know, not everyone is traumatized by their parents who, who use drugs, you know what I mean? And then yeah. some of us are, and we can also work on that and find peace and reprieve and, and, you know, mended relationships with, with parents or loved ones or guardians or whoever. So I just, I, yeah, I just think it's really important that you're touching on that, you know, and, and I, I also want to go into what you said about like, just your experience, you know, with, with, you know, basically medical trauma and also say that I'm sorry, I like, like jokingly said that's significant trauma, like almost <laughs> laughing and I apologize, bro. But like, oh, it, 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 uh, it, it, it is, it sounds like a, a significant thing. And I can say as someone with a lot of medical trauma, it's very interesting that you went the other direction because often people, they have that medical trauma and they're like maybe demonizing medicine or demonizing doctors or they just have a fear of hospitals and stuff like that. So I just think that's, that's really interesting that that was a huge motivator. And I just, I don't know, I just think it's, it's cool. But how much did you just your awareness about your dad contribute to the next topic I want to go into is like, specifically addiction medicine um you know and like that obviously you know had an effect uh, i'm assuming and that it was inspirational um you know when it came to looking even into that but was your intention just to do emergency medicine and then yeah. you went into addiction medicine kind of after that or like i don't really know how schooling <laughs> medical school works so like totally. what does that look like what is that yeah what does that look like for you so I want to walk it back even a little bit more. Yeah, um, let's do it. When I was growing up, I wouldn't say that my dad having alcohol use disorder was anything negative in my life, but he was an AA. And my understanding from my parents and the way that I was taught about substance use disorders um, was in that frame, right? And the way that I came to understand it, not just from my parents, but in life, in society, right? We, we yeah. perpetuate the stigma in society. And, um, and so I had internalized a lot of that, uh, even more so, I think, because it was something that I felt was important for me to try to understand so that I could understand my dad. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, having a brain tumor and almost dying and, and undergoing multiple surgeries, like that was my motivator. That was what inspired me to go into medicine. Yeah. And absolutely having personal experience with, you know, a, an immediate family member, in this case, you know, my dad, like, and we're talking about, and I want to contextualize this, and Macaulay and I are going to talk to, to, our parents at some point and interview them and you all will hear like you have to understand my dad was like my my hero right he is an absolute badass he was every 
the epitome of success in every stretch of the imagination, right? He was uh, um, professionally accomplished. He was physically accomplished. Uh, he did a like half Ironmans very frequently. I want to say like every other year while I was growing up. I mean, he was just training and and um, athletic and super supportive of all the things that my brother and I did. And we were both very athletic. And, you know, he took us to do all the insane things that we wanted to do, including normal, like playing normal sports too. Like he got us surfing and rock climbing, all of those things nice. um, growing up. And so this is, you know, we're talking about like, I wanted to understand this person to who is the most important person in my life in in some sense, right? Yeah. Um, and so those two things were both hugely influential. And I don't mean that hugely influential, like as if I had trauma around it. I mean yeah. that I wanted to understand it better. Yeah. And But I understood it in the wrong context because the way we as a society treat people with substance use disorders is wrong. And so the biggest sticking points for me, the biggest light bulb moments came when I was in residency, right? So I didn't go okay. to medical school wanting to be in emergency medicine necessarily. Okay. Actually, initially wanted to be either like a family doc or a pediatrician. Um, I loved working with kids. I still love working with kids. And emergency medicine gave me an avenue to both be there at like the most challenging, acute, critical moments in people's lives and still like do all the things that I was interested in, which was like everything in medicine, right? You sort of see everything and do everything, but in the most critical period. Um, and also it was important to me from the framework of like an equity lens that emergency medicine, we had no barriers, right? You cross the door threshold and you were legally required to see you. And I liked that. And I liked that the culture of emergency medicine is like, that's what we're here for. That's what we do. We are here, right? Every, anything, anytime, anyone, 24-7, 365. And I love that. And so that was what inspired me when I was a med student to then want to pursue that. And then I'm in residency, right? So you do four years of undergrad, you do four years of med school. And then I went to emergency medicine residency, which was four years I'm at UCSF uh, in San Francisco General. And San Francisco General is the only county hospital in San Francisco and the only trauma center in San Francisco. And so you see everything. Um, you see, like, some of the richest people in the world could come through the door. And some of, like, the people that society has completely ignored. Um, and, you know, the people who are unhoused and, um, have active or actively using, and those become some of your like favorite patients. Those are the people you see all the time. Right. And some people may find that annoying, but the culture of this like mission driven hospital was was that those those were your people, right? Everybody is, can come through that door. And that was a thing that was like, honestly, I, I like woke up in the morning 
when I had to go to a shift and I felt inspired by that. I like look out my window over San Francisco and like, like these are my patients, right? Anybody could be my patient. And so we would have people who were well known, you know, we would like to say like they were friends of, or they were well known to the emergency department. And when we didn't see them for a while, people would be like, Oh, Hey, did you, anybody know what happened to like Tim? Right. Even if he's like always intoxicated and kind of an asshole when he like comes in, right. You like, you know that you, you care about them because they're a human and they're still showing up and they're still coming through the doors. And, um, and so I started to recognize that like I was taking part in a system that was harming these people. And that a lot of the things that I had internalized growing up, thinking about, you know, trying to understand somebody who I love, that I was causing harm. And you can't recognize that you're causing harm without trying to do something about it, like from a, from a humanistic perspective. Yeah. So I really had to do a lot of unlearning and change my mindset about how we treated patients in society, like how we approached homelessness and substance use and substance use disorders and, and, and people who were in active use and whether we should be, whether we should have to make abstinence the only means of like survival, right? We're, yeah. we're telling people like get sober or, or like, we don't care about you. And especially now with the, the, the dangers of the current drug supply, like what you're telling people is the dichotomy is get sober or die or like potentially risk your life. And I, yep. I, I can't continue to participate in a system that does that and not think that we should be doing better. Right. None of us, none of us go into medicine to like actively harm people. We just don't realize that we're actively harming people. Yeah, I hear you. Not until you realize that. And then, and then when you do, you're like, oh, we better do something about that. Yeah. Or sometimes people, because of just, they're stuck in their ways or because of just defense mechanisms or even we could just say ego, it's, it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow when you realize like, hey, a lot of the stuff that I learned or my internalized beliefs may not even be true and maybe inherently problematic and hurtful and, and not just hurtful as far as, you know, mental health. But, you know, when we're pushing abstinence, it's like people, people die because of it. And it's like, I did the same thing. I literally was completely indoctrinated into that approach. And so I think that's where, you know, we really meet with that experience and having good intentions too. That's the thing is like, you can have all the best intentions in the world, but if you're not understanding harm reduction philosophy, if you're not understanding that we're dealing with people, not just these addicts, it, it you know, it, it can really cause a lot of discrepancies and, and a lot of harm. But really, it makes me think about specifically addiction medicine and how that like if you will just entertain me with this i'm like baiting you with this but 
what aspects of addiction medicine education for you were outdated and problematic if you're comfortable and kind of touching on that because I fully support addiction medicine and I also am very critical of addiction medicine because there's a lot of archaic addictionologists out there that I think are very problematic at best and you are not one of them. So that's why I'm here with you and that's why I love collaborating with you and that's why I was like so excited when we connected because I was like, oh, cool. You know, because I, I mentioned I have a bunch of medical trauma. And so the, the addictionologists that I've connected with over the years and just the, the other medical professionals have really helped me to heal my trauma by just even encountering people like you and providers like you and just being able to talk and be like, oh, wow, like this person gets it, really understands it and is actually advocating from a compassionate, empathetic, pragmatic place and not stigmatizing people. But I'll, I'll stop and get off my soapbox. But I just, I want to know specifically, like, what are some of the things that came up when it came to addiction medicine, education, training? Um, and, I, and just push this aside if you want to, but if you can tie it in, I can also revisit this. Did that then contribute to some discrepancies when it came to the ways that you looked at your loved ones or you know people that obviously you're treating or encountering and just like really that was like a huge loaded question but if you will just go into any of that <laughs> no that, that i think that's a really great point and i appreciate you you know sort of your vulnerability there um i so the amount of time that is spent actually talking about and exploring substance use disorders like in medical education in medical school is really small um we don't honestly like there isn't good education around it and what we do like the 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 framework around which we discuss it is mostly you know i i i was in medical school at the very so i started in 2009 right sort of at the tail end of this like quote unquote overprescribing epidemic um and you know and so then the like discussions there were a lot of ongoing discussions within medicine about you know we had just had this big pendulum swing towards like pain is way under treated and so that was how this all happened right and we were told that these were non-addictive and opioids and all this stuff and so I was in medical school right as the pendulum was swinging back and where the discussions were talking about like, um, you know, the, the, the PDMPs, right. And like, oh yes, now we can, you know, more and more States were like creating their own or, or creating networks of these, um, prescriber, you know, where you could see controlled, controlled substances that were prescribed and you could, you could track down whether somebody was like, you know, doctor shopping and, and all this stuff. And it was all about like catching people, you know, who were trying to, trying to like misuse opioids and, and all, all of this, um, sort of really negative framing. Um, mm-hmm. and like the discussion, the first time I ever learned about Suboxone was in medical school and it was discussed as like, oh, well, this is really brilliant because they put in the naloxone, which is not biologically active orally. But if you try to inject it, it'll put you into withdrawal. And it's like, one, it's described as a super clever idea. And then the more you learn about 
the more you learn that that like pharmacologically doesn't even make sense, first of all. But second of all, it's like celebrated, but it's this really putative thing. Um, like, oh, well, if somebody tries to misuse it and inject it, then like we're going to harm them. And that's a good thing. Like that's the, the abuse deterrent. Yeah. People can still do that too. You know, like um, people who use drugs are, are not dumb. In fact, they're often really intelligent and they understand this stuff really well. And like, they'll know if they're going to do something like that, then, you know, they're in a situation where they don't have access to the other things that they prefer to use. And so they know when to, when to use it so that they can yep. still get some opioid activity out of it. And all this stuff, like you don't understand that as a first, second year medical student when you're in your lectures, right? So medical school is divided into first two years are generally um, like pre what we call preclinical. You're listening to lectures, you're, you're going through your exams, you're doing like anatomy and all that stuff. And then your second two years are clinical where you're actually in the hospital and yeah. in the clinics and, okay. and seeing patients. Um, and so you're literally talking about like your first two years of med school, you're doing this. And, and some of these people are like coming straight out of college. I didn't go straight through, but nonetheless, I was still in my like mid twenties at this point. And I, you know, and coming from a frame of like thinking that I had some level of experience, I had tried to explore this and understand a little bit better than like my average classmate, yeah. uh, because I had, you know, personal experience. Um, and so you're coming out of your preclinical years with this framework that's super negative, And then you're seeing that reinforced, unfortunately, by other physicians of like, oh, well, you know, this person is just, you know, they're just like, you know, they're, they're just seeking their drug seeker or yeah. they're, they're doctor no shopping or they're, they're like, um, and, you know, really um, sort of doubling down on that negative framing that you start to learn i want to interject really quick and ask you so did you have experiences when you were like on the job um or you know during the the process of getting your hours in you know when it came to being in a hospital to where some of those like negative stereotypes were kind of reinforced by some of the chaotic behavior that you saw from people with substance use disorders or yeah. from like how did yeah. you how did you navigate that? Because it's like very clear that you've done the work. Was it something that you experienced and you indulged in? Like, did you find yourself going into stigmatizing or was it something that was, I guess, more internal or, you know what I'm saying? Like how, I just want to know, because I just, I'm really interested in, in these types of things. Cause I went full blown, like, you know, over the top abstinence cheerleader and, you know, went intense with it. So I know often a lot of us that end up looking at discrepancies in our own attempts at advocacy, um, a lot of times it goes pretty deep, you know what I mean? So like what, yeah, what was that like? And I'm sorry just to like go into this yeah, abruptly, no. but like, I just want to know, cause you just m mentioned that like you're seeing that with colleagues and stuff, but then was that also kind of confirmed with some uh, some chaotic experiences? And if so, like, even if you like, if you're open to share, um, you know, anything you're comfortable with um, ethically, just as far as like stuff that maybe brought that up to where you're like, oh, okay, like maybe these people are not to be trusted or, yeah. oh, yeah, this is med seeking, you know, like what? Uh, and again, I'm just like hitting you with these like long winded questions, but um it just, if you will, just elaborate on any of those many things that I mentioned, because I'm, I'm really interested to know. 
all of that. Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, you, you're taught in a fairly negative frame, unfortunately. And, and, and I will say, um, to the credit of the current state of medical education and the, and the educators and the people who are actually doing the work of creating curriculums and teaching med students, um, who, you know, I, I, I am not one of them. I admire the heck out of the people who do that. They are doing a better job of making sure that we are doing a better job of framing our discussions around substance use disorders as, you know, trying to incorporate non-stigmatizing language. I mean, the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, which like the name in and of itself is ironic because they came out with a list of words that we should be changing in the way we discuss substance use and substance use disorders. And one of those words that they said we should reframe is abuse. But they are the National Institute of Drug <laughs> Abuse, or NIDA. And of their own list, they, they say, basically, which I've said for a long time, and I get a lot of pushback, you cannot abuse a chemical structure. Abuse implies harm, and it, to harm something implies that they are like sentient and capable of understanding yep. that harm. And these are like chemical structures that are not sentient and they cannot understand that they are that, that like, well, you can't harm them anyways. But even if you were, they're not sentient beings. Yeah. It's a, it's a series of bonds, right? So it, you cannot actually abuse a drug. It's certainly you are, can be abusing yourself with substances, Facts. Yeah. but, but, but you're not abusing them. And so, so, that is just to say, like, those are things that I, like, I appreciate now because I do supervise med students and residents in my, in my clinic and in, in the emergency department. Um, and I appreciate the fact that they come with more questions and they're more curious from, from the lens of trying to have empathy for people who use drugs. Um, and in a non-stigmatizing, non-judgmental way. Um, and it, it, that's not true everywhere. And I happen to be in Northern California and, you know, there's, there's definitely a difference between other parts of the country, but I will say that I think we're doing a better job of that. So I don't, I don't want to like suggest that medicine in and of itself is inherently super harmful and we're never going to change. We are capable of changing. We are capable of changing as individuals, which I think you and I both prove, and we're capable of changing as a system. And oh, I think yeah. we're working on doing that. Um, we're certainly not there yet, and we have a long way to go, but it is and is going to get better. Um, Agreed. And so mm -hmm. to, to go back to my own experience, though, like back when I was a med student, I wished I had more mentors early on who challenged that who like, like if I came with a negative frame, who would have pushed back on that or um, would have even just framed it to me differently because then I would have seen that and I thought, oh, well, that like, you know, that's my attending or that's, you know, somebody who's a mentor to me and, and, and they see it differently. And so maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but there's so many things that were reinforcing the negativity. And some of those were, individual experiences, including with patients, right? And I happened to be um, in, so I went to med school in Sacramento, I was at UC Davis, and uh, especially then, 
we didn't really have much of an opioid problem. We had a meth problem for sure. Um, and meth, you know, historically has been a West Coast problem, um, trafficked on, on along the I-5 corridor. And we're right there, right? It was, it, we were right in the, in, in that um, sort of strike zone. And we had a lot of the, all the problems that come with chronic repeated methamphetamine use and, and like stimulants in general. And you could see the, the like psychosis and all of those things, the agitation. And so you would see a lot of negative things happen because like both to patients and that patients would cause as a result of that use, especially mm -hmm. in the emergency department, for example. And, you know, we didn't have the like opioid pain med seeking as much because opioids weren't as big of a problem. Um, okay. and, and certainly that existed. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't like meth was the big issue um, at that time. And, 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 but people would still talk about it fairly negatively. And you had a lot of patients who would come in repeatedly who were sort of you know, they had meth use disorder and they were chronically using amphetamines. And so, it, you know, it was just like you would see that sort of cycle over and over and over again. And, and that kind of drives a certain message towards yeah. you. And yeah. it's not until you like that in and of itself can solidify a negative framework for you. Um, and and <laughs> unless you do the work to, to extract yourself from that, and see it differently, then it's going to be really hard to then project compassion for those, you know, for people who are, say, using methamphetamine. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that part it, it was hard. It, and it wasn't until I was in residency where then I was the person who was, in, you know, I, I'm not in charge because I had attending, supervising me, I had mentors, I had senior residents. Um, when I was first starting, but then I was the doctor, right? And then I was responsible and I had some position of authority and I had fortunately mentors who did see a different frame and were able to give those nudges. Um, and that really helped me. Um, and I, I feel very fortunate that I still get to work with some of them now. Um, because I, you know, I I, that's where I work in the emergency department. and so. Mm -hmm. Um, it, that, that was hugely impactful, but yes, it is, you, you have those experiences and it really does like make it harder because it's solidified. Like if you have a negative frame and you have this negative stigma and then you're in the context where that you have negative experiences, it like solidifies the negative framework. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think I always say this, but within the recovery community or space, it's often the knock is coming from inside the house because a lot of people, I can just speak for myself. I had really low self-worth and was very, I had, I demonized substance use in order to kind of reframe it in my mind and, and to kind of address the compulsion, which I don't really suggest people do, but that's really what I did is I demonized it. And, and then I had the experiences with my mom with her alcohol use disorder where I had an immense trauma from that. And, you know, then you pair that, you know, with the internalized low self-worth, you know, negative internal voice and all of that. And it actually affects the way that you meet other people. 
And, and yeah. even if you're in recovery, especially if you end up in traditional recovery in, in like 12 step, a lot of times what ends up happening is you're seeing everything and every person through the lens of that experience. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's really tricky and it's not easy to get out of. You have to have others who have already done that work in my experience to a certain degree. A lot of it is like a, it's an inside job and it can come about you know, to where it's very clear, hey, even just for my own well-being when it comes to encountering others, in your case, being, you know, a medical professional, I think if I'm going to continue to do this, yeah. I'm going to have to kind of look at it in a way that's sustainable. And I think that's where it can be tricky because I've talked to a lot of different clinical people, you know, medical professionals and stuff like that, and they tend to get really burnt out and often angry at the perpetual stimulant use disorder patient, angry at the perpetual, you know, opioid use disorder patient who's also experiencing real chronic pain. So it's like, it's really, really tricky. And you touched on something so important. It's like others definitely planted that seed for me. And then there's a lot of work that you have to do internally. Um, but I want to, I, this is just kind of a, a quick topic I want to go into, but like, when was the first time that you, obviously you were talking about NIDA and, you know, the list of, you know, non-stigmatizing labels and terms. And I think that's really cool that that, you know, was put out on an institutional level. I know that I believe, unless I'm mistaken, that Obama or there was something that went on around that time, um, on an institutional level. And actually, no, no, it was actually, um, I think at the beginning of of Biden's term, even to where there was more kind of a literature put out there when it came to like the words being used by like medical professionals and clinicians. And, you know, obviously like the importance of person first language, but like what, when was the first time that you even heard of person first language and yeah. what was your reaction to it? Where, cause a lot of people are like, that's bullshit. Like, what are we going to sugar? Like everyone thinks it's sugarcoating, you know, like I'm sure you've heard it so many times. Um, but what was your reaction when you when you heard the concept of person first language for the first time and were you receptive to it? I honestly can't remember the first time <laughs> okay. I was. Yeah. But I'm willing to bet that my initial reaction was like, why does this matter? Um and and so that is on that list that NIDA put out is yeah. the the first few things are using person first language. Um and I didn't hear person first language the first time in the context of substance use or substance use disorders. Um, I heard it in the context of describing people by their medical condition, um, which mm. applies to substance use disorders. But it was like, patients are not diabetics. They are a person with diabetes. And, I, and like, okay. to me, yeah. I was like, okay, I feel like we're arguing about semantics. Yeah. And you are. You are arguing about semantics, but but you're neglecting the fact that semantics are important. Um, like, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yes, exactly. you can say you're just arguing about semantics, but that ignores the fact that that is also important yeah. in the way that we think about, right? Because, you know, like mental exercise, think about what you think of when you, when somebody says, oh, that junkie in room four, and then somebody says, Hey, that person with opioid use disorder in room four. Yeah, and what no, does shout that out bring to, to shout mind? Shout out to Tara, really quick, because I, <laughs> yeah, I, when I heard that, I was like, "Oh wow, okay, 
yeah, I mean, it's it's based on the extreme end of the spectrum and like the extreme manifestation of a substance use disorder. So as soon as you say it, you're going to be associated with that, you know? Sorry to cut you off, but yeah, I had to shout oh. out uh, Tara really quick with that. But but yeah, continue. The, the um, you know, the like, so for me, it was helpful that when people framed things like that, like, okay, yes, it's debated semantics, but semantics are important. Yeah. And let's think about what that means when you say these words. It was easier for me to accept that conversation when I thought about my own dad, mm. right? And so um, I, right? So when somebody would say, hey, that's just an addict or a junkie, it's like, you're talking about my dad though, you know? And so that like every time wow. you hear that over and over, you're like, that hurts me. Like it hurts me when you say that. And when you personalize it that way, then everything changes, right? It does make it easier for me to understand um, when when I have that connection. Um, yeah. And so I actually, when I was in residency, um, we my residency program had started uh, a program in the in the community in San Francisco where we would go to high schools and do like anti dare type talks, like like real we would call it just like real life in the er like let's talk about drugs yeah um and i helped lead that especially later on in residency and expand it and try to get it into all the high schools in san francisco and, and neighboring county in marin um and i once i sort of took over creating the like powerpoint slides that we would use i actually put in a, a, a um fortunately with my dad's permission i put in a, a photo of him um biking and i said like what does it look like to like what do people with who with substance use disorders what do people who use drugs look like and then i then like it would transition to a, a photo of him and that right because that was the place i had gotten to but yeah. it took a, a long time to get there but it was like oh now I, now i get it because of that and and to go to something that you said about your experiences with your mom um being part of that change process for you i was going through my own thought process about this um when my father had a re return to well really when he like started using opioids yeah. um in a in like a, a chaotic way um to the point he had a prescription he had gotten into multiple um bad bike accidents and had some severe pain from that and so he had a prescription for opioids and then he was you know misusing them yeah. um and overusing them and you know it, but it was it was hidden from all of us and we didn't sort of discover that until a time where I was in, now at the end of my residency and I had sort of come to a place of understanding of this um and that actually changed a lot for me uh, i had already sort of done the work to get there um, but it really solidified for me like having conversations with him around that time and about what that meant for him and what that looked like um and also like 
the feelings that I personally had around that because I had come then to understand substance use and substance use disorders as part of this complex web of, you know, emotion and exposure and all of those things. And now he had the exposure from having a prescription. Um, and I felt like I had played a role in that in some way. So like I wasn't there to support him through that. Otherwise, why would he be hiding it from us? Right. Um, and if we as a society approach people who use drugs from the opposite perspective, from a place of love and compassion and empathy to help wrap services around them to get them support, no matter what their goal is, whether their goal is to be completely abstinent or not, the only way you can make any of that better is to do literally the opposite of what we're doing. And it no. wasn't until that sort of moment that like, it, it almost felt like that kind of radicalized me. Like, okay, I, I've gotten to the place where I understand we need to take a more harm reduction approach. We need to approach people with, with empathy and compassion and they are still human and we should contextualize it in the sense of person first language and think of them as people first and they have a condition just like any other medical condition. And we should treat it because that, like, like I, I like to use the example of multiple sclerosis which um, for those who, who don't know, it's an autoimmune condition that is understood to be a relapsing, remitting condition. And if somebody has a flare, it is where the auto, their own immune system is attacking their nerves and basically stripping the nerves of their function by causing these little um, areas of where it breaks down the like, sheath of the nerve that allows it to send signals and so if you are breaking down the function of nerves you're like literally doing damage their body's doing damage to their their own neurologic function right their own brain and their nerves that go like to their throughout their entire body um and if somebody is coming in in an acute flare of multiple sclerosis to the emergency department we're immediately like Let's get an MRI. Let's give them IV steroids. Like, let's give them the immunosuppressants to tamp down the system that's causing their own body harm. But if somebody comes into the emergency department with substance use disorder, we're just like, well, here they are again. We're not going to be able to do anything for them. So, like, throw them in the corner and, like, let them sober up. Um, and it's like, seeing that, you're like, okay. Why then, if we consider both of these people as human, and these are both medical conditions, why is one we're like jumping on it because we're like, oh no, they're actively causing harm, their body's like harming them, to another person who's like, they actually have a medical condition that's also causing them harm, and we're like, eh, forget about it, we can't do anything about that anyways. It's like, but we can, we can if we are willing to do those things like if we're willing to develop the services wrap those like bring the services to them wrap them up with wraparound services to get them connected we have medications that can treat substance use disorders to do like for craving management for withdrawal management like we know how to do this we just don't invest 
in doing it. And so when you start to realize that, then, yeah, all of a sudden you like, and it shouldn't be radicalized. It should just be like <laughs> being human. Humanized, um, you know. It, it's... Yeah, right? Like, to me, yes, I became radicalized to the extent that I was like, oh, everything we're doing is wrong. And now how do we rethink what that looks like? Because if everything we're doing is wrong, there has to be a right way. But we don't yeah. know what that right way is, and we're clearly not doing it yet. And I, like, I hope that we get there, and I have ideas. I have my own ideas about how we get there. But certainly the system that exists now is wrong and harmful, and we should do better. And we, can, we have the tools to do better. We just don't know necessarily yet how to apply them, or we haven't invested in them. And we still have to change this stigmatizing framework that exists around substance use disorders in society. And I like to say that stigma comes is like, a, it's a three-pronged problem. One is within society, right? And, and, and that just exists like culturally. It's a sociocultural phenomenon that, um, that we can change, but it takes everyone. The second is within healthcare, um, and that is a part of society. Doctors are, and you know, doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals are all humans in society. We get the same, we internalize the same stigma that exists in society. But that is a prong because that, if we know that we can do better, then we should do better, and we can start helping people out of these, you know, harmful cycles. And again, based on their goals, not some um, artificial, uh, you know, harmful dichotomy that we present to them. Um, and then in the recovery community, which again, also only humans who are part of a social, you know, uh, part of society that has socialized stigma, but within the recovery spaces, like you were talking about, there's a lot of perpetuation of stigma against people with substance use disorders which like seems very like self-defeating yeah but it's existed for decades and and that has to change too yeah. and so those are the sort of three-pronged approaches um or three aspects that like need to change and then you can have the other things changed like the the institutional level around um criminalizing substance use all of that can't change unless we sort of focus on those three things and then the last part of that sort of three-pronged uh, effort is internalized stigma of people with lived experience right because the shame and the isolation right we're talking about people who already feel negative emotions towards themselves generally often and part of that cycle of negativity is because society is shaming the use of substances and so you feel bad but you also feel compulsions to use and, and like the impulsiveness of using and if you are active in active use and society is telling you you're bad for doing that you're only going to spiral downward and you're going to become more isolated and yep. then that's going to create more negative feelings and so if we can 
adjust the framework through which those three prongs sort of approach substance use and stigma, we can help fix that last step, which is the, the internalized stigma, the, like on an individual level. We can't change that until we change those, those sort of like big three structural problems. Oh, agreed 100%. I always like generalize it and say um, it's within institutions, you know, it's within, you know, recovery spaces and culture. And you're bringing up a really good point to where it's like, well, how do we effectively, you know, address it on an institutional level? And the thing is, is that there's a lot of internal work for each individual to do, each provider, each person in a position of authority, each person in a position of authority in recovery spaces because that is leverage time and recovery is is leverage and it gives you power it does and, and it gives you authority over people's lives that are vulnerable and so yeah no, i agree a hundred percent it's something that you know that's the whole point of us doing this right here is to you know advocate and and also take action when it comes to you know, actual reform or reform of, of just the recovery space in general. And then, you know, the the one thing I want to say, just kind of an affirmation, you know, taking it back, you know, five minutes or so is, uh, you know, I just, it's refreshing to me to to hear someone that, you know, took the, the experience with a loved one and that incentivized like growth because often it's, does the opposite and it ends up being the main reason why people feel so entitled to perpetuate stigmatizing labels rhetoric and stereotypes it's one of the most prominent things i see when i'm advocating for person first language or just the use of the term substance use disorder and it speaks to the derogatory connotation that we have with the word addict or addiction you know and so it's just refreshing to me to see the other side of that because I was the one that because of my mom's alcohol use disorder, I viewed so-called alcoholics as, you know, just the trope, the, you know, the person that's chaotic and saying abusive things and like all of that. And it's like, Hey, there are people out there with alcohol use disorder that do not manifest that way at all. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not represent that of our employers. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please follow up with your doctor regarding your care. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. Thank you for listening.